So Isaiah 58 is where we're going to be in the Bibles this morning. So if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 58. We'll also put the scripture up on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the ones that we have provided in the seats there. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take this Bible home. It's our gift uh, for you to take home and to break in. And on those uh, seat Bibles, it's page 523, page 523. But Isaiah chapter 58 is our text for uh, this morning. Uh, The past few weeks, I've been really, really excited and anticipating uh, sharing this scripture with you. This is just a a powerful passage of scripture. It's one for me that really stirred my heart at the age of 17. Uh, This passage, uh, God really laid upon my heart at the same time that I was beginning uh, a new relationship, a relationship that would uh, forever change my life. Uh, At 17 years old, I was in my hometown and I was driving my beat-up old Nissan Sentra through uh, the, the main drag of the town. And something prompted me to turn off of this main drag uh, from the direction that I was going to go explore this neighborhood that I had never really been into uh, before. And I don't know what it was at the time, but now I know that it was, it was the Lord really stirring my heart and, and pushing me in that direction. This is a part of town that for me was a little bit un- uncomfortable. It would be a part of town that, that people would probably consider the hood, right? And so I found myself driving through uh, the hood, and uh, I, I was nervous. And uh, I remember driving around this, this part of the area, just, just kind of looking around and and seeing people that were a lot different than me, uh, socially, economically, just on so many different levels, way uh, different than me. I just remember, remember that real distinctly, just the, the feeling of this is different, but I'm here and I'm driving around, I'm not sure what this is all about, but let's explore. And uh, I remember as I'm driving around this, this area, I get to this, this one spot in the, this, this big complex of apartments where there was a, a park, and it was a beat-up, kind of run-down park, and they had, I remember there were two basketball uh, hoops up with no nets on them, and one backboard was cracked. I remember like a merry-go-round that was rusted up, and there was one little kid walking across the park, and again, I don't know what came over me at the time, but now I know it was the Lord. I I said, I got to park my car, and so I parked my car, and something stirred me to to go and to talk to that kid. Now, I remember looking in the back seat of my car and I found this football, and I'm no football player by any stretch whatsoever, but my brother uh, played on the team, and he had left a football in the back of my car, and so I'm like, all right. I grabbed the football, and I remember walking down in the park, and this kid's like, who's this white boy coming up to me? And I remember walking up to this, this kid and saying, hey, man, what's your name? And he goes, my name's Josh. No way, me too, my name's Josh. How old are you? He goes, I'm eight. And I go, me too. And he's like, what? I said, I'm just kidding. I'm 17. And so we, we started talking and getting to know each other a little bit. And I said, you want to throw the football? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Lit up. And we just stood there uh, and just threw the football for probably 15, 20 minutes. And I remember just how much this kid, Josh, just absolutely loved the opportunity to throw the football with this older guy. And, and as we were throwing, I just asked him all kinds of questions just to get to know him a little bit. And I learned a little bit about him. I learned that he didn't have a, a father in his life. His mother was in and out of jail. He lived with his grandmother, Sadie. I remember he lived with also four other siblings. Later, I would learn that each of those siblings had a different father, same mother uh, that was just struggling with drugs, and she, would, uh, she broke into a convenience store, all kinds of stuff, so just in and out. I remember that Josh and his younger sister, Olivia, were, were crack babies, and so they had a lot, of, a lot of issues. And I just remember thinking that here I am with this guy, and I'm having so much fun. And it's just strange because we really had 
nothing in common. He was eight, I was 17. He was black, I was white. He was poor, my family did all right. He had seven to ten people in a two-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment. I lived in a nice, cush, comfortable, five-bedroom, two-and-a-half bathroom, uh, middle to upper middle class home. He lived in the, the, what was referred to as the hood. I lived in a, a nice kind of suburban neighborhood. He spoke, uh, you know, the hood language, and I spoke straight up white boy, right? And so it was just, uh, it was um, just, we, we didn't have much in, in common. And I remember, you know, through all of that, just being really amazed at just the, the relationship that we were able to to start to have together and just becoming friends with this guy. I remember starting to realize that though we have nothing in common, we really do kind of have everything that's important in common, don't we? We were both created by uh, the Lord in his image. Jesus valued him like he valued me. He was sinful just like I'm sinful. Jesus died to pay the price for his sin just like he died to pay the price uh, for my sin. He could come to faith in Jesus at age eight years old like I came to faith in Jesus at age eight years old. And just having all these, these things that were welling up in my mind and in my heart and all these just realizations that for a 17-year-old guy was really, really uh, powerful. I went home that night just excited as all get out when I told my mother where I was. <laughs> she was like, <"You're>, what? <laughs> That's, it made her really nervous, as you can imagine. And I remember... Just a few days later, thinking, i got to get back there. I went back to visit Josh again. And this time, Josh and his siblings all came out. And this time, I knew I wasn't a good football player, so I brought a kickball. Played an amazing game of kickball with Josh and his siblings. A few days later, I get a hold of a bunch of my buddies, and I say, guys, I have a crazy idea. You're going to think I'm weird. Let's go to the projects, and let's play kickball with a bunch of kids. 17-year-old guys, a couple of them were football players, a couple of guys were wrestlers, one guy was on the, on the basketball team, they said, we're going to go do what? So we're going to go play kickball with little children in the projects. And we went, and it was absolutely the most fun I think I'd ever had at that point in my life. And you know what? God was, God was up to something. Throughout the course of that year, I graduated high school, and that summer, by the end of the summer, I found that I could go into about 50% of the apartments in that complex with my friends. And we could sit down and hang out with the kids and get to know their parents. We were able to tell a lot of them about uh, this Jesus who we just so loved and, and adored. And that relationship with this young guy, Josh, absolutely changed my life. That summer, my friends and I said, can we get a little more, more aggressive in, in, in serving these kids and these families? And so we rallied together and we started a, a day camp. And because I'm all about alliteration, see, I'm a, I'm a preacher, and so we make things alliterate a lot. My wife says, listen, if you alliterate one more time, I swear, it's got to stop. But we made a camp, and we called it Slammin' Summer. And it was a blast. And uh, it grew over the course of a few years to, to 60 kids. And we just absolutely, we loved these kids. So much so that when camp was over, we were exhausted with dealing with all kinds of crazy, crazy issues. When camp was over, we... We, we found it hard to even go home in, in the evenings, and so we'd hang out. And my, my parents, I remember, were struggling with, okay, he's graduating, he's about to move off to college, and he's staying out really late in the projects, and this is making us a little nervous, but maybe we should let him have some freedom. And they were just, they were really nervous by it all. But I just remember, we loved these kids, and we, we couldn't leave. We just wanted to, to be there with them. And then went off to college, and I remember 
I'd come home from breaks for breaks, and I would go and visit Josh and his sibling and his grandmother Sadie and other kids in the complex. I'd grab some of my old high school buddies, and we'd do the same thing. Come home for summer, we'd do camps. Again, we did it for several summers uh, in a row for three summers. And uh, my friends and I had no idea what we were doing. I was a camp director at age 17 and had no idea what I was doing with 60 children. We'd go on field trips to the zoo, and this one little girl, Olivia, who was a crack baby, would have seizures right there. And I'm a 17-year-old guy with no idea what to do. We didn't know what we were doing, but here's what we did know. We loved these kids, and we wanted to serve them, and we wanted to see restoration in their broken lives and their broken uh, families. My mother works, still does, for the Department of Juvenile Justice. And so I'd go off to college, and uh, I would, uh, I, I'd be in college, and I'd get a phone call from my mom, and she'd say, I just want to fill you in on something. Josh is in a lot of trouble. He stopped by my office today. His brother, Lewis is in a lot of trouble. Stopped by my office today. I get another call. This girl, Tasha, you've been working with, she's in some trouble. Stopped by my office today. And I just remember my heart broke. I'm 10 hours away. What can I do? What can I do 10 hours away? And I just remember thinking, these summers are too short. We need to invest in this place long term. We need to be there for the, for the long haul. It might take years of investment. It might even take a generation of investment to break this cycle that these, these kids seem to be stuck in. But investment was essential, and long-term investment was essential for the brokenness in, in this particular neighborhood. And I just long to see that happen. And I, I still long to see that happen. Over the years, as I was off to college, and then I'd move on up to, to Massachusetts, I remember hearing, as I check in with my friends, what's happening there, what's happening there. And I would hear different people say, well, this one church went in and tried something, but they, they gave up because they didn't see a, a lot of immediate results. See, we, we want to we gauge things by what happens tomorrow. Is it, it going to bear any kind of result or fruit tomorrow? And if not, we'll just pull out. And I just remember thinking they need long, long, long-term in, in investment. And you know what? I, I just wondered, what would happen if a church invested for the long haul in this broken neighborhood? And I still wonder, what could happen with the church that would invest for the long haul in a broken neighborhood? What could happen? It's a question we as a church are facing. What would happen if we invested for the long haul in a broken neighborhood? During this formative season of my life, Isaiah 58 was laid heavy on my heart, and I could not get out of this text. It was also during this season, you may imagine, that falling in love with this chapter of Scripture, I said, you know what, if if I ever have a son, I think I'm going to name him Isaiah. And So now I have a six-year-old named Isaiah. And so I want to look together at the first 12 verses of Isaiah 58. If you want to look there with me, Isaiah 58, first 12 verses. And what I want to do is I want to start with our last verse, if we can. Let's start with our last verse, verse 12 of Isaiah 58. This is the dream here. It says this, And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of 
of the streets to dwell in. That's the dream right there. We start with the last verse because we want to see where we want to go, who we want to be. You shall be called restorer of the streets. Wow. It's incredible. Two weeks ago, we were in our Washington Street uh, connection group, and we were interrupted with a phone call in the middle of teaching, interrupted with a phone call that a young man uh, was shot just down the road from the group. I think he's still in critical condition. We're praying for him. That's brokenness in the streets, right? But can you imagine, you shall be called restorer of the, the streets, repairer of the breach. Can you imagine that? That's incredible. That's what we long for. I'll say it this way. This is a really our, our, our main point, the thrust of what we want to look at together this morning, and that's this, that restoration in the streets begins with repentance in our hearts. Let me say that again. Restoration in the streets begins with repentance in our hearts. Repentance in our hearts. Now, what is repentance? We've heard this word. It's one of those words that gets thrown around all the time in a church. What is repentance? To repent means to turn away from something and turn to something. We must turn away and turn uh, to someone. You know, repent was the very first word that Jesus issues in his public ministry. He comes out of the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan, as, as, as you may be familiar with that story. He comes out of the wilderness, and in Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, his first word, repent. Repent. You have, to, you have to turn away. We have to repent, and so we have to repent of something in order to see, verse 12, in order to see restoration of the streets. And so let's read Isaiah 58, 1 through 5, if we can. Here's what it says. It says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Let's look at this a little more closely if we can. Verse 1, God is talking to his messenger Isaiah. God's kingdom is divided at this point to the northern and the southern kingdom because of inner turmoil. And God's prophet to the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, God's prophet to the southern kingdom is this man, Isaiah. And he's the messenger to these people. And in verse 1, what does God tell Isaiah to, to say? In verse 1, he says this. He says, Isaiah, cry aloud. Isaiah, do not hold back. Isaiah, lift up your voice like a trumpet. God is angry. Do you hear this in his tone? God is, is angry. He says, Isaiah, give it to him. 
and give it to him loud. He says, Isaiah, hold nothing back. Isaiah, sound your voice like a, a trumpet. It's, it's this warning. God is angry. And all the way from 1 through verse 5, he even gets sarcastic with them. Oh, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. He gets angry, and God himself even gets a little snide and, and sarcastic with them. Now, time and time and time again in Scripture, don't we read that, that God is slow to anger? Right, Josh? He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in loving kindness, and he's forgiving of sin and rebellion. We read that, don't we? So, so what's going on here? That, that he forgives us of our sin and our rebellion through Jesus who died on the cross for that sin. God is slow to anger. But if you remember correctly in, in the scriptures, when does God most commonly get provoked to anger? God gets provoked to anger when there's hypocrisy. There's hypocrisy. He gets provoked to anger. You can read uh, throughout the, the, the gospel accounts, the record of the life of Jesus on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when God becomes one of us, God in, in human flesh, and he, he lives uh, among us. And when we see God in the human flesh, when do we see God tender? And when do we see God angry? We see God very tender, surprisingly, with the woman who's caught in adultery. We see God tender, surprisingly, with Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector who's ripping people off. We see God tender, surprisingly, with the prostitute. He's tender with them and, 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 and compassionate with them. And those are some ugly sins. But when do we see God get angry? When do we see Jesus flame up with the hypocrites? Not with the people who are far from God, but the people who are supposedly really near to God. With the, the religious people, the people who thought we are so righteous. Those are the people that he gets angry with. Because their hearts and what they say, their actions, out of sync. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. And he's angered here right now at God's people in this passage, Isaiah 58. He's angered at them. Isaiah, sound the alarm. We have an imposter. We have a phony. We have a fake. Sound the alarm. These people outwardly are really eager to live for the Lord, but inwardly their hearts are deeply, deeply corrupted. What were they doing? Let's look at what they were doing. Verse 2 says this, they seek me daily. Now, in the Hebrew language, the original language here, that word me is given in the emphatic to really show the irony of what's happening here. God says they seek me daily. How ironic. They seek me daily and then with the sarcasm, he says, they delight to know my ways. There's sarcasm there. And then he says, as if, not like Clueless, remember the movie? As if. But he says, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. They delight to know my ways. They seek me daily as if they were a nation that did righteousness. So were they a nation that did righteousness? No. He says, they do it as if they were, but they're not. God is upset with them. Now, we also see in verse 3 that they're upset. In verse 3, they ask God, God, why have we fasted? Why have we humbled ourselves and prayed to you? And you don't see it. You don't hear it. In the Old Testament, 
in, in Leviticus chapter 16, it's the, the one day a year that, that the people of Israel were called to, to fast. Yom Kippur it was celebrated by our Jewish friends uh, a couple of weeks ago. Jewish people were all over the streets. You saw them every, everywhere, just all over the place. I remember at a coffee shop sitting at this window, and they're all just walking right by Yom Kippur and thinking, man, if they only knew Jesus paid the price for the sin, the Day of Atonement. And so... That was the day that they fasted. But these people were going above and beyond Yom Kippur. They were fasting, fasting, fasting. But for them, they're upset because God wasn't hearing their prayers as they're praying and, and fasting. His fasting was to, to help accentuate their, their prayers, to really heighten their focus on the Lord. And God wasn't hearing their prayers. So they say, God, why are we praying and fasting? You're not hearing it. And then the second question they ask in, in verse 3 is, says, God, why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And we see them sackcloth, wearing sackcloth, that itchy garment and ashes and really humbling themselves, taking off their street clothes and putting on really lower, lower clothes right, to humble themselves. Why are we doing this and you don't even acknowledge it, God? What's up? What's up, God? And that statement right there, aha, that's an aha moment. Their heart begins to be exposed. They're trying to manipulate God. God, we're humbling ourselves. You don't even see it. You're not even doing anything about it. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to do religious things to manipulate God as if he's their, their toy. Does this sound a little bit familiar to Christianity, especially here in the West? God, I'm doing the right things. God, I'm going to church. I'm praying. I'm singing. I might even sit through a 45-minute long message on a hard wooden bench. God, you owe me now, right? God, you work for me. And this morning, all over the city, people are going to churches. And they're thinking, God, I've gone to church. I've done my duty, and now you owe me. You owe me a spot in heaven. God, you owe me health. You owe me prosperity. You owe me wealth, security. Because I'm doing my part, God. I'm doing my duty, and you owe me kind of reminds me of like a child and you know you put together your toy and for whatever reason it's not working the battery's mis- put in improperly and it's shaking and god what's wrong you're broken i'm doing everything i'm supposed to do but you're not working for me the way i want you to but then we see that the truth comes out and god answers their question which is another just another sign that god is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, that he would even humor them of their question asked with ugly, ugly motives. And he answers them. The second half of verses 3 and 4 says this. He says, behold. He says it twice. That word behold means, hey, listen up right here. He's being kind of firm with them. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress your co-workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. See, God hates hypocrisy. That's why Jesus in Revelation says, I wish you were either hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I want to spew you out of my mouth. Because when somebody's hot and they're on fire and they're living for the Lord, it's identifiable, right? But when they're kind of like just lukewarm, it's like, they're kind of living for the Lord. They're doing Christian things. And Jesus says, that makes me want to spew you out of my mouth. I wish you were hot or 
told, not claiming me at all. Because hypocrisy, this middle area, confuses people, right? I don't know what the real deal is because I see Christians living this way, but on Monday morning they're an atheist in the way they live their lives. I wish you were hot or, or cold. For these people, they fast and they pray, and oh God, hear us, and we'll humble ourselves and we'll dress a certain way and we'll sit down on the ashes and we'll, we'll do uh, churchy kind of things, but then the same day they're doing very selfish things. The same day they're oppressing their coworkers. We don't know what that looks like. But let's not say, well, I don't oppress my coworkers, so I'm, I'm fine. We do other things. The same day that we say, God, I'm for you. I'm following you. I'm, I'm living this way. And we do things that are, are, are sinful and contrary. He says, you, you fight and quarrel and you hit with a wicked fist. And let's not say, oh, hold on a second. That's not me. I'm not hitting anybody. What does Jesus say? He says, you, you can murder in your heart, right? the way we think about people. And so let's not say, I didn't hit anybody. And so God hates, hates, hates hypocrisy. And then verses 4 and 5, he says, this is what you call a fast. I'm not going to hear you. He says, this is what you call religion. I want nothing to do with it. God's saying, we, just, we, can, we can often just go through the motions, can't we? We can bow our heads and not bow our hearts. We can do religious, spiritual things, but really what we're doing is maybe even making it all about us and and trying to manipulate God that he would work for us. Listen, at at 17 years old, this passage hit me square between the eyes. Boy who grew up in church, I knew how to do the thing on Sunday. I did. Tuck my shirt in. I don't anymore. I'm more spiritual now, I guess. I don't know. I tuck my shirt in, dress up, I looked the part, I'd show up to church, do everything that, that a good Christian boy needs to do. My heart wasn't there. And this passage hit me square between the eyes that I could do that, but I could just ignore, ignore the poor among me, in my neighborhood, just across the way, down the street. But I could, I could look the part and go to church and sing the songs, but my heart wasn't even really there. I liked the melodies. I don't know that the words really reflected anything that was happening in my heart. And so we have to repent of this kind of thinking. If we want good for the city, if we want restoration in the streets, it has to begin with repentance in our hearts. Repentance in our hearts. If we want, like we said last week, if we want to make an impact out there, it starts with good content in here, in our hearts, in our community that we have to be truly humbled before the Lord and not put on this, this false piety, right? We need to be truly humbled before the Lord. And can I tell you and remind you that one of the most humbling things to imagine is that God, who knew no sin, who spoke into existence this planet, this universe, our lives, who holds our very breath in his hand, our God who is in the heavens, who does whatever he pleases, the scripture says, said, I will become one of them and I will live among them in human flesh. And they will mock me and they will follow me for a little while when it's convenient and they will bail on me when it's not convenient. And I will still die for them. I will die for the same people who are nailing me to the cross. I will say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That God would 
do that, that he would live perfectly, not deserving the wage of sin, death, and he would yet lay down his life and die sacrificially for us. That is probably the most humbling truth out there, that if we could really see what Jesus did on the cross, as we're about to, to, to remember here, here in just a moment with our time of communion, that if we would really see that, we would be humbled by that. And only Jesus can humble us, and I pray that he would. Because when we try to humble ourselves, we're faking it again, aren't we? So I pray that as we look at the cross and think on what he's done, that it would, it would, it would humble us. And some of us here this morning, the first thing we need to do is not figure out what we can do to make the streets better. But the first thing we need to do is repent of false religion. Turn from false religion and turn to Jesus and trust in what he has done on the cross for us as our substitution. And some of you you need to do that in this moment. You need to call out to him and he will answer and he will forgive you of your sin and he will become the Lord of your life and his death is now substituted for your death and that though we die physically, we live eternally with him. And so we need that. Some of you need to do that in this moment and I implore you to do that. And then there's Christians among us who we need to turn from our tendency to drift back towards false religion, thinking that I can perform and earn my salvation. That I can do this and this and this and this and somehow now I'm good enough for the Lord. And God says, you can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. Now, I say all of this before we even get into the final seven verses of this chapter. In fact, you may be surprised by this, we're actually rounding third base right now in the sermon and heading for home. And, and, and you may be surprised by this because you're thinking, well, we have all these other verses to do. And as we read through these other verses, it seems like these verses tell us how to go do, do good things for the city, don't they? I mean, these, these verses, as we'll read ahead in just a minute here, really speak to doing good in the city by freeing the oppressed, by housing the homeless, by clothing the naked, by feeding the, the hungry. So why would we spend the majority of this morning looking at the first five verses when the, the last seven verses tell us of the tangible things that we are to do? And the reason we need to look at the first five verses primarily is because it's, it's really easy to read the second half, the, the, the last seven verses there, and, and we can read them and think, if I do these things, I earn God's favor. And it's not the truth. It's not the truth. We earn God's favor because we trust in what Jesus has done for us. That's why there are plenty, plenty of people out there who are doing good things for the city. There are people out there that are feeding uh, the, the, the hungry and clothing the naked and, and housing the homeless and, and freeing the oppressed. There are plenty of people doing that apart from Jesus. Uh, we're even emphasizing organizations that are doing great things, not necessarily even Christian organizations. We're praying for them. We care for them. We want to support them. And you can do good things apart from Christ. We can do good for the city apart from Christ. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, you shouldn't be able to not do good for the city. If you've trusted in Jesus 
doing good should just be this natural overflow. And so my struggle every single week with preaching before you is the temptation to every single week just preach, go do this, and go do this, and go do this, and go do this. When really the best thing that we can do is say, let's focus on our heart. And when we're really where we need to be with the Lord, these things just overflow. That we do things that please the Lord and serve his people. They just overflow because we've trusted in Jesus' sacrificial death by laying down his life. And so it's just a natural overflow of our trust in what he has done. We too likewise want to be like him and we want to sacrifice our lives for others. We want to give our lives for serving others. And so we're going to read it. But the challenge is not to go do it. The challenge is to be right with God, be humbled before God, and let these things overflow from your life. And so let's read 6 through 12 of Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fast I choose? God says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, there's a lot of ifs and thens, then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. Righteousness that we have in Christ goes before us, before our deeds and our effort. And the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets, to dwell in. I pray that we would be so gripped by the amazing love of Jesus that these things would just overflow from us. We don't have to think about loving people. We just love people because he loves people, because they were made in his image and likeness. And that as a church, we would be repairer of the the breach, that we would be a restorer of the streets. Be reminded of our our theme verse for this whole series, Jeremiah 29, 7, where God says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. It sounds like verse 11 here, doesn't it? In its welfare, you will find your welfare. And he says here, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched place and make your bones strong. And you will be like a watered garden whose waters do not fail. See, God cares for us as we say, I'm going to worry about other people. God cares 
for us. And so in its welfare, we find our welfare. And so we need to get our eyes off of self and get our eyes first on him. And the overflow of that is we see his sacrificial, loving nature and what he's done for us. And we say, I've got to serve other people as a natural overflow. And so I pray that this morning, for those of us who haven't trusted in what Jesus has done, that we would repent, that we would turn from sin and turn to him. That we would turn from false religion and we would turn to true religion. That is, trusting what Jesus has done, not in what we've done. Because our best efforts, scriptures say, are like filthy rags. And he doesn't want us to live our entire lives thinking, I hope I'm good enough for heaven. He says, you can know, not based on your works, but based on what Jesus has done and your complete and total trust in him. And so some of us today, we need to do that. Others of us, we've trusted in that, but we have this tendency in our flesh to drift back to trying to perform to earn his favor. You have his favor. Your shame is washed away. He loves you, period, period. When my son and my daughter do things that upset me, I don't stop loving them. I love them. They are my children. We are his children if we're trusted in Jesus. We can't lose that. And so some of us need to become a child of God, become a Christian and trust in Jesus. Others of us, we need to say, I am so sorry. I confess my sin to you that I have been trying to perform to earn your favor and therefore say, I don't need your grace. We need his grace. Now, as we close out our series, I want to close with the exhortation of Jeremiah 29, 7, where he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So would you join me as we close out this series by, by praying to the Lord for this city? Father, we pray for the city of Boston where you have sent us. Lord, thank you that we're not in exile. Lord, thank you that we have freedom in this country to live for you. God, while we're in this city, Lord, may we bless it. May we serve it well. But Lord, would you help us to not so focus on the good of the city that it becomes fake and false religion. Lord, may we serve the city because we know that you first served us. And that you serve to the ultimate end of giving your life. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this place this morning that doesn't know Jesus, is not trusted in his life and his death and in his resurrection for our sins, Lord, that they would turn and trust in you and be made right with you. Lord, thank you that unlike every other religion in the world that demands performance and then we fail and we're shamed, Lord, that our faith is all about trusting what you have done because we're going to fail. 
time and time again. So help your people, Father, to trust in you, to begin to follow you. God, help Christians to, to turn back to you and to enjoy the fullness and the, the, the freedom found in being a child of God with your unconditional love upon us. May we overflow with love for this city. We pray for Boston. We pray your blessing upon it. We pray for restoration in the streets. We ask that you would use us in a powerful way here. Do a great work in them. Give us strong relationships with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family, and with those people that we do life with in sports, school, parents, in our, uh, our circles, with our children. Lord, help us to have strong relationships, Lord. And the people would see the reason of the hope that we have. And that we would share it with them, as the scriptures say, with gentleness and with respect. We pray for an awakening, again, a third great awakening in New England. Begin with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.